worship. If you would, we're going to be uh, in Luke chapter 10 this morning. Luke chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. It'll be on page 869 if you're using the, uh, the Pew Bible there. Uh, before we read today's passage, I just want to draw your attention uh, to one verse uh, before this, chapter 9, verse 51. And it may seem like a small verse, but this marks a major transition in Luke's Gospel. Luke nine fifty one. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, why is that so important? Um, Jesus is determined, right? It says Jesus set his face, echoing the language of Old Testament prophets, to set your face. Uh, it was a Hebrew shorthand for basically saying that he was very determined. Jesus was very determined. And what was he determined to do? To go to Jerusalem to be taken up. Jesus' eyes are set firmly on the cross, set firmly on Jerusalem and the cross that awaits him there. And so as, as we continue through Luke's gospel, the shadow of that cross is going to get larger and larger. Even now, the drumbeat of the cross is echoing in the background, but it will become increasingly uh, louder as Jesus approaches and even enters the city of Jerusalem. Uh, and so what we're going to see as we move through this part of the gospel is that Jesus spends a good bit of time teaching those around him about uh, what, what truly following him looks like. So as Jesus walks the path to the cross, he also is going to spend, be spending lots of time preparing his followers for the cross as well, what it means to follow a cross-bearing Savior. And actually in the next three passages over the next three weeks, we're going to talk about uh, what, what, a, what that life looks like. Today we're going to talk about a life of love lived towards others. And then two passages on what a life of love lived towards God looks like. So today, uh, let's go to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. As Jesus sets his face to make the journey to Jerusalem. And it says this, Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is God's inerrant, infallible word. He gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray and ask for his help in receiving it. Father, we thank you for your word. For many of us, this uh, this section, this parable, may be familiar. God, I pray that familiarity would not breed contempt, uh, but that we would see this word afresh. And for those uh, of us for whom it's not familiar, God, that you would speak to us with clarity and forcefulness. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know if I can ever uh, if I can ever read the word neighbor without thinking about Wilson. If you did not have the great privilege of coming of age in the 90s uh, and you did not watch Home Improvement, then you did not see Tim Allen regularly make a fool of himself, nor did you get to know his neighbor, Wilson. Inevitably, I think in almost every episode, Tim ends up in the backyard having caused some grief to himself or to his family. Uh, And inevitably, there's Wilson on the other side of the fence to dispense wisdom. Now, here's the beauty of Wilson. You never see his face. Um, most of the time, he is obscured by a fence that you cannot see from the nose down. So all you can see is his eyes, and usually he's wearing a hat. Because the most important thing about Wilson is what he says. His voice, his wisdom to Tim. And inevitably, Tim usually does not hear it. He hears it, but then applies it wrongly. So Wilson will share some pearl of unbelievable wisdom that will help Tim resolve his difficulties. And Tim goes, uh, and totally, totally misapplies it, right? Um, But Wilson is a good neighbor. Because at some point, I would give up on Tim. And I would not continue to serve Tim in the way that Wilson does. But Wilson never gives up on Tim. And so, as we talk about, uh, as the the Pharisee asks the question, who is my neighbor, Uh, and we talk about what it means to be a neighbor, uh, we're going to see that being a neighbor, right, one who serves selflessly, uh, is at the core of what it means to be neighborly. Uh, But before we get there, uh, we need to kind of first set up the situation. So uh, three things, three areas we're going to look at today. We're going to talk about pursuing a life of love, checking our hearts, and learning to ask a better question, the better question. First, let's talk about pursuing a life of love. Uh, Jesus is teaching uh, as he makes his way to Jerusalem. Uh, we don't have a whole lot of details about where he is or what he's doing, but he is teaching and an expert in Jewish law, what our, uh, what Luke calls a lawyer. 
stands up. This man would have known his Bible, his Old Testament very well. He would have known the traditions that go along with it. Uh, and he stands to ask Jesus a question. And this would have been a very common question, especially in Jewish circles. We see Jesus answer it a couple of times. But he asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So for a Jewish person who's familiar with the promises of the Old Testament, what this man is asking is, how can I be sure that I will receive God's future blessings? How can I be sure that I will be at the resurrection of the righteous people in the future? Uh, We might ask it in this way, what must I do to be saved? How can I be sure that I'm in the right place, or that I'm doing the right things. And the first thing I want you to notice is where Jesus points him. Jesus responds with a question. So he doesn't answer the question directly this time. He actually responds with a question, pointing him back to the Scriptures, which would have been this man's expertise. And this tells us a couple of things. One, Jesus is not teaching something new. Jesus is not teaching something new or different, but rather he defines what is good with reference to God's word, right? So uh, he doesn't say, hey man, listen, you just do whatever feels right. If that, if, 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 if that feels right to you, then you do that and God will be pleased with that. J- Jesus doesn't say that. He points the man back to the law, to God's revealed word, re- revealed will, and he says, what does that say? What, is, what, what instruction has God already given us that might indicate what kind of life God is looking for? And the man gives a correct answer. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.8. He doesn't answer with an abstract feeling, but with concrete action. And this section has been called the, the greatest commandment. Uh, and I think it's important for us to see because it gives us, in it, Jesus uh, gives us kind of a good rule of life, right? He says, love the Lord your God with all your emotions, with all your consciousness, with all your drive, with all your intelligence, right? This fourfold uh, description of life tells us that there is no compartmentalization here. When it comes to devotion to God... When it comes to my love for God, there is no, there is no compartmentalization. Rather, it is to be my whole person. It's what we call integrity. I am to love God with my whole being. So, how I conduct my business, how I cheer on Friday or Saturday night, how I worship on Sunday morning, what I share, like, tweet, all of these fall under Love for God, this all-encompassing rule of life. And there's a, a parallel love that goes with it, and that is my devotion to others. That I am to love my neighbor in every way that I would love myself. If I would do it for myself, I certainly wouldn't do less than that for my neighbor. So love God completely and love your neighbor selflessly. In fact, Jesus is going to say in Matthew 22 that on these two things, all the law and the prophets hang, right? That every command in the Old Testament could be summarized in one of these two, to love God completely and to love neighbor selflessly. 
And so that's what the lawyer says. He answers correctly. And Jesus says to him in verse 28, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This is what a life of trusting in God looks like. Now, I hope that that creates a conscience problem for you. I hope that as you hear those two things, that that creates a bit of a burr in your saddle. Uh, That you realize, I am a failure, if it not least one of those, a failure at both. There's a number of ways you could respond to those commands. Love God completely, love neighbor selflessly. One way you could respond is you could respond with with cold indifference. Who cares? And all I would say to you, if that's you, if you are coldly indifferent to God's word for you, then I would say that you are in a dangerous place. Uh, that, That Jesus attaches these two things to eternal life. So the blessings and reward of God are attached to these two. And if you ignore them, you ignore them at your peril. Now the second way that you could respond to these is you could say, Yep, that's what I believe. I got it. I'll try harder. Right? Kind of the way of of self-reliance. That I'm going to buckle down and, and keep trying. And then the third way... When you hear those two commands, as you could say, Oh my gosh, I can never do this. I need help. Only one of those is right. Uh, so let's, uh, let's look at the lawyer and let's see what he does. And we can use him as an example for, for checking our own hearts. A couple of things I want you to notice about the lawyer. First, I want you to notice uh, what, what Luke says about him at the beginning. He, he is asking this question to test Jesus. I don't know if you've ever been in this situation in a class um, or whatever where, where somebody says, Hey, I've got a question. But then as they start asking their question, you realize that they don't actually have a question. They're just making a statement in the form of a question and they just want everybody else in the room to know how smart they are. Yeah. All right. This guy is asking this question not because he wants to follow Jesus. Not because he wants clarity on what it means to love God. This man is asking this question because he wants to trip Jesus up. He wants to show that Jesus is a heretic who does not understand God's word. All right. Uh, And so... Maybe even just the first diagnostic question we ought to ask ourselves is, do we approach God to confirm what we already know? Or do we approach Him with a genuine desire to grow and to change? Are we open to being challenged by God? And then, I want you to notice uh, what what this man's motive is. So, so he asked the question to test Jesus, to try and trip Jesus up. Jesus uh, brilliantly turns it around and says, well, you tell me. Uh, and then when the man gives the answer correctly, Jesus says, you got it, bro. Go do it. And then the guy says, and lo- notice this in verse 29, uh, he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? His motive is self-justification. He wants to prove himself. 
He wants to prove himself before God. He wants to prove himself before others. He wants to show that he is in and not out. He wants to justify himself. And I think it's interesting, if you look closely at his response, I don't want to, uh, it's, it's hard to, to press too much beyond the details, but it seems like he assumes he got the first part covered. The love God part, he doesn't ask about that. It's almost like he assumes he's checked that box. Like, well, yeah, got that covered. Tell me about the neighbor thing. Right? So it, it appears as if it, he's assumed he's checked that box. So he moves on to the second command. And when he asks about the second command, he, he asks in a way that limits his responsibility. Right? Because if you're going to justify yourself, if you're going to prove yourself that you're doing it right and not doing it wrong, then you need to know where the line is. Because God forbid if you do more than expected. Right? And so... He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? What's he, he, he's asking, he's basically creating a circle, the neighbor circle. And he's asking Jesus, okay, Jesus, who fits in that circle? Because if they're not in the circle, then I don't have to love them. So, so who does that term apply to? Love my neighbor as myself. I can do that. Just tell me who it is. Who do I need to put in my neighbor circle? Who am I responsible for? And if your idea of a virtuous life is primarily a system, like this lawyer's is, if your idea of a good life is primarily a system, then you have to know where the lines are. You have to know where the boundaries are. Where's the, where's the fence? Right? So, questions like, I'm dating this guy. How far is too far? Or... How much is enough? Is it 10%? 20%? Is it the gross? Is it the net? Because if your idea of a good life, of a virtuous life as a system, then you have to construct boundary lines so that you know how to prove yourself. Am I in or am I out? Have I done good or not? Right? So maybe that system is a set of rules. Good people, follow this set, do this set, and do not do this set. Maybe it's cultural expectations. These are a little bit more nebulous, but we get them from uh, our family, who we grew up with, where we grew up, our experiences. But we say, well, good people live this way. They do not live in this way. But notice that they're really the same. You're constructing a system so that you know where the lines are. So that I can go right up to the line but not cross it. Should I cuss or not cuss? What words are really bad words? You, you may be old enough to remember uh, George Carlin's words, the seven words you can't say on television. Don't go watch that video. I am not recommending it. Right? But isn't it interesting that legally regulators still cannot agree on what should or should not be included as content on television. We have a really hard time drawing the lines. Why? Because the lines always move to suit us. So, uh, whenever we draw lines, whenever we're setting up our system, we're always going to set up the system so it's most advantageous to us. So, if you're this lawyer creating, creating the neighbor circle, I'm going to create a circle that's most advantageous to me. Who's my neighbor? 
Who can I, who can I put in there? Who would you put in that circle? How do you draw the lines? Because if I am seeking to justify myself, if I'm seeking to prove myself before God, then I need boundary lines that tell me how far to go or how much to do so that I know when good is good enough and I don't go beyond that. And this is where Jesus is really frustrating because He doesn't measure the virtuous life with prescribed lines and boundaries. Uh, we may uh, we may look at this passage uh, in the future, uh, Luke chapter twenty, uh, verses twenty four and twenty five. Jesus is approached again by someone trying to test him, somebody trying to trip him up. This time it's a, a question of taxation, right? If we can just prove that Jesus supports the nasty Romans, then we'll finally get him, right? And so and so the man says, "Hey, should we pay taxes to the Romans or not?" And it's interesting uh, what Jesus says. He says, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So Caesar's face is on the money. Pay the tax. Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And give to God what belongs to God. What belongs to God? Everything. Including the money with Caesar's face on it. And all of Caesar's kingdom. And Caesar himself. So what does God rightly deserve? Everything. No boundaries or lines there, right? Jesus challenges us uh, because he doesn't make it simple, right? The good life is not measured in simple lines and boundaries. Rather, it goes deep and encompasses the heart. And so if we approach Jesus trying to prove ourselves in the same way, then we're going to come away frustrated. Because Jesus is not interested in listening to you prove yourself. You cannot justify yourself before Jesus. And so what Jesus challenges the lawyer to do and us is to ask a better question. He answers the man's question by telling a story. A story that maybe you're familiar with. Uh, It's a parable. It's a, a story used to convey a meaning so you can't press all the details out. Uh, but it's a story about a man uh, who on his way down to Jericho gets mugged, beaten, and left for dead. And two pillars of the community see him and go out of their way to avoid him. They do nothing. And then help comes from the least likely person imaginable. Now, I'm going to reframe this story And I'm going to reframe it in a way uh, for us so that we can hear it the way Jesus' original hearers would have heard it. A man uh, is beaten, mugged, and left for dead by the side of the road. Thankfully, a little later on, a pastor walks by. But seeing the man, he actually crosses over to the other side of the road and keeps going. Later on, a respectable businessman, a Sunday school teacher and leader in his church, also comes down the road. And he sees the man. And he too passes by on the other side. And then along comes a radical feminist who writes content for CNN on her way home from a pro-choice rally. And she sees the man. And she goes to him. 
She grabs her first aid kit out of her car. She tears the sleeves off of her shirt and begins bandaging his wounds. She throws him in the back seat of her car, takes him to the emergency room, and then stays in the ICU waiting room with him overnight, periodically checking in, uh, getting reports from the nurses to make sure that he's improving. The next morning as she heads out, she swings by the business office and says, here's $5,000. I don't know what condition, I don't know if this man has insurance or not, but I'll take care of the bill when I come back. Now, if your first thought when I retold that story was, she wouldn't do that, then you're exactly in the right place. Because you're exactly in the place where Jesus' original hearers would have been. Samaritans were despised people. They were half-breeds who did not worship God rightly. No good Jew would share a meal or share a drink with a Samaritan. And so Jesus exposes their hearts and our hearts by making the hero of the story the least likeliest person of all. Jesus chooses the least likely hero to expose our hearts and to get us to ask a better question. Notice what he does at the end of the story. After he finishes, and everybody there is probably in stunned silence, he says, which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Do you notice what Jesus did? He flips the question around. The man, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? Jesus in effect says, that's not the right question. The right question is not, who is my neighbor? The right question is, how can I be a neighbor? Who became a neighbor to the man? Right? Who is my neighbor is a limiting question for those who seek to excuse themselves, to justify themselves before God. But Jesus wants us to consider, how can I be a neighbor? It's another, it's another question altogether that drives right to the heart. And notice that when the man answers, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He describes him as the one who showed mercy, which is exactly right. The neighbor is one who goes beyond, who goes above what is expected or required. So what does it mean to love my neighbor as myself? It means to show mercy, to show compassion. It means to see a need and not make an excuse. Daryl Bach says, love that comes from the heart responds with the hands. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. And that go and do should create an even deeper conscience problem. Because I'm not a good neighbor. How can I become a good neighbor? This, this kind of compassion, this kind of mercy, this kind of love, it can only come from one place. You can only love other people this way. You can only serve other people this way when you realize that you have been loved this way. 
You have been served this way. When that happens, it sets your heart free and then you can love others freely. Your hard heart has to be melted by compassion before it can truly show compassion. The more we know a love without boundaries, the more we will be able to show boundless love to others. I don't have to prove myself. I don't have to convince you that I'm a good person. Any of the other things that we use to justify ourselves, those all go away when I finally am free, am free uh, when I have a, the, the love of God poured out on me. Who does the Good Samaritan remind you of? You should not see yourself in the Good Samaritan. Right? You in the story are the bleeding man left for dead by the side of the road. And another comes along and at great cost to himself, binds your wounds, sets you on the path to recovery, and supplies you with everything you need to get better. The real Good Samaritan is none other than Jesus Himself. So, stop seeking to prove yourself to God and to others. Instead, rest in the free, boundless love of Jesus. And let Him do the proving for you. Let's pray. God, we don't know what it means to love like this.